you'll hear it at large native gatherings and small native gatherings. Someone will say, all my relations. What they mean is not they're Uncle close, yeah, yeah, grandma and grandpa. They, they do mean that. But when they say all my relations, they're looking out across the entire existence of, uh, of what we see. Uh, the trees, the rocks, the whole works. We have a connection to all that. We're not separate from uh, the, the natural system. We're just part of it. Meet John Waterhouse, a research scientist at the University of Idaho and a National Geographic explorer. John has spent much of his time at National Geographic traveling with indigenous peoples from around the world, including his work in the Amazon, Alaska, and Russia. His goal is to provide a way for indigenous people to gather, record, and communicate their place-based science with the wider world. At U of I, John will be continuing that work through a project called LINK, which combines virtual technology, modern environmental science, indigenous science, and indigenous culture. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research from the University of Idaho. Throughout the second season of the podcast, we're going to meet U of I researchers and learn about the questions they're trying to answer, the problems they want to solve, and what intrigues them about their research. John and I sat down to discuss the goals of LINK and why such a project needs to exist. Hey, John. Thanks for coming in today. Uh, I really appreciate you you know, taking the time out of your day. Can you introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Thanks for having me. So my name is John Waterhouse. I'm new here at the University of Idaho. I'm at the uh, College of Arts and Architecture in the Virtual Technology Lab as a research scientist. My resume, though, is a little bit crazy. If Pretty you're colorful. with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a National Geographic Explorer. And prior to that, though, um, I've been many things. I was a presidential appointee under President Obama to advise on uh, environmental issues affecting the entire North American continent. Um, retired Navy Chief Petty Officer, um, Indigenous Leaders Council. So you can see it kind of goes all over the map. And we're talking about Native tribes across the globe today, and you are? Which I am one of those. I'm Skalalem and Chippewa Cree. But I'm also a little bit Scottish. So. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we just have thrown it all in the same bucket today, haven't we? <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's right. kind of a crazy resume. <laughs> great. Oh, great. So let's dive in. So you came in just, um, I believe it was in October, September, October? October, end of October, yeah. Okay. And you're going to be working primarily, at least on one big project out of the virtual technology labs, and that's called LINK. Link. Can you tell us what that stands for okay. and sort of the basics of what the goal of the project is? Okay. So LINK uh, stands for uh, the Living Indigenous Network of Knowledge. And so what is that exactly? So it's a look at uh, science, uh, starting with water quality and environmental science. But there are other components. Uh, there's the cultural side and who indigenous people are on the land. It's indigenous science, which is complementary to contemporary science. And then there's the research questions of the indigenous people themselves. Okay. Yeah. So you're combining uh, native knowledge and science with modern science. 
mostly focused around water quality. Yeah, and you can look at it as a combining physical science with social science, too. It's a step that a lot of projects don't take. Now, something we haven't really mentioned yet is, okay, so you're, you're combining, you know, what's going on in, in the native cultures with the, with the science, but you're in the virtual technology labs. Where does that overlap <laughs> with uh, both of these types of sciences? Link right now is working in Russia, in uh, Saha Republic, and soon the Buryat Autonomous Region, and also in the Nanet Autonomous Region. It's also working in northern Canada, in the Northwest Territories, and the Yukon Territory. And then it's based here in Idaho, working with the tribe here, the Coeur d'Alene tribe up in Plummer, Idaho. So when you think about that, how many languages are we dealing with? I have no yeah, idea. <laughs> numerous. Just in the Saha Republic, there's at least 11 different languages beyond Russian. And then in Canada, not only, you know, their English is a little different than ours, but just the indigenous, the native languages like the Teslin, Clinkat people. And then here in Idaho, you know, the Coeur d'Alene tribe has its own language. And there's a reason to be in the virtual technology labs. And the, the reason uh, is to be able to visualize all this. We're humans. Our eyes are on the front. We're visual. So we can create a database of all this information that's completely... 3D and visual, visual. And so what we call this is the next generation 4D colorized database. That's a long name, I understand, but the, the fourth dimension is time. So this is, it will be happening in real time. And then the other three dimensions. We can take the water quality data and express it like that. The environmental data that can be expressed in this database then because it's an indigenous-led project, and this is a very important aspect of it, especially the indigenous people, is who they are and who their culture is, and expressing that through this database, where some of the technology we can, uh, in a 3D format, we can introduce you to a tribal elder that can tell you about what's going on out on the planet. So that's all part of this database. So can, can you kind of paint me a picture? Let's say that I was um, in a virtual landscape, basically a virtual watershed right. um, for the Coeur d'Alene tribe. If I'm you know, walking through this virtual landscape, what are some of the things that I might be able to learn? Simple things? Simple things. Oh, sure. Like um, you could touch that tree and you'll get a description of what that tree is. Maybe it's just a Douglas fir. A lot of us are guilty of walking through the forest and have no idea what all the trees are out there. Something like that simple, but a little deeper about what that Douglas fir is all about. The water temperatures of the water and the health of the water, all the different constituents in the water, those will be things that you can experience as you walk through that environment. And then um, because it's 3D, you know, you'll be able to understand the landscape around you uh, maybe uh, we've discussed including like uh, the, the firescape for, um, you know, forest fire and all that. Uh, it's what's important to the indigenous people, though, is really going to drive this. What are their questions, their land? So then you'd learn sort of their story of the landscape as well as you're walking through it. Yeah. So to help people understand, uh, so this is a very indigenous project and uh, much of it is sitting down and listening to the indigenous people 
and taking that step. Now, you have to have the time to do that. I, I warn people ahead of time that if we're going to spend time and listen to the indigenous and really listen to them, it takes a lot of time. A simple story could take three days and lots of tea. <laughs> but you have to be able to commit to that kind of understanding to really get this right. Okay. Like you said, this is this is a, a, a large project to be able to, you know, tell these these modern science stories intertwined with the indigenous stories and all the science that comes from both sides. So I kind of wanted to talk about why? Why? You're dedicating so much of your life to this. Because I, I know that you, you've you been having these types of conversations for quite a portion of your life already. <laughs> Most of it. <laughs> Most of it. <laughs> and why is it so important to combine those two? And, and, and I'd kind of like to start with the modern science. What questions are so important that the Native tribes are focused on? Let me try and explain that this way. Um, so in my time in Alaska when I was the director of a very big council that had 70 tribes and First Nations in it, 15 or 20 years ago, we could go to the government and say that our fish and birds were dying. And they would say, yes, yeah, so. We had no scientific proof in their opinion. As time went on, um, I was asked to take on this project. It was called The Healing Journey. That's what it ended up being called. And we were going to go down the Yukon, two canoes. And talk to people about environmental stewardship. Before we left, though, I set my team down after a whole year of planning because we were going to go down 2,000 miles of the Yukon River in two canoes, that this isn't going to work. And they said, what do you mean? I said, because we'll reach the indigenous audience, but nobody else will care. They said, okay, John. They said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, we're going to add in modern science because that's a language that they can understand, other people can grasp hold of. And I said, so we're going to take water quality samples all the way down through here using modern science. And we used some of the most modern techniques possible and had uh, telemetry equipment where we could broadcast them in real time to the scientists. Oh, cool. It was a nice bridge-building exercise in a way. But we also showed uh, scientific uh, results along the river that they had no clue were happening on the Yukon River. Now, when you say they, you mean... The modern scientists. Okay. But at the same time, it was a learning experience for everybody because as we sat down with tribal leaders and tribal elders along that entire river, which there's some 60-plus communities on that river, and it's roughly four different distinct cultures that live along the entire length of the river... We learn a multitude of knowledge from them about indigenous things along the river, even as simple as uh, trying to find your way back to the village if you're lost at night by knowing which way the wind blows and how the grass is bent where your village is. But also knowledge of uh, you know what birds used to come to the Yukon that don't come anymore because the climate has changed in that region. So you take all that and we build a huge bridge between scientists and indigenous people to answer questions that were valuable to society as a whole. At least from what I've read in the past, you know, kind of the, the classic scientists haven't necessarily reached out to native peoples. I would think with the advent of the internet and, you know, as people realize how important, you know, getting all the information that they possibly can, <laughs> that you're getting more of these collaborations over time. 
You're exactly right. Uh, at times, uh, they've overlooked the indigenous science. The current generation of researchers, this is the really exciting part about all this, is they're very open to these ideas. They are like the rock stars of now because they are very open to listening to the indigenous, going to these extreme places, and coming back with the knowledge that it's going to make this project even better than it is. And that is all based in these young researchers with the modern technological tools that we have right down to your smart device in your pocket on a global basis. Because I think they actually care beyond the moment. They're acting like, I would say, like an elder and looking into the future and saying, where are we going? What are we doing? How are we going to do this? Let's go listen to those people and see what we can do. And that's no matter where we go on the globe, we see that. So a lot of these places, I I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you're going to Russia, you're going to, you know, northern Canada um, and Coeur d'Alene. Those are not places that your average scientist is going to be able to pop over and take measurements of. So it seems like this extends the reach of modern science as well to areas you wouldn't get to sample otherwise. Yeah, and when you think about the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, a few years ago, probably I think it was about 2014, they cited that as something we're missing. Is uh, they, they said that a lot of our models are a bit inaccurate because we don't have all the data. So it's hard to advise government and, uh, and business on these climate changes that we're experiencing around the world. Uh, and the indigenous actually came to us and they wanted to participate. So in these remote regions, we don't have the data because we don't live there. But the people that live there do care. They have a deep connection to everything out there. So they do care. They want to know what's going on in a scientific, a modern, contemporary scientific context so they can share that with the world. Attached to that is sharing it to the world that they exist, that they're on the planet and that their story needs to be shared too on understanding how to live in balance on the planet. It seems like they, they bring to it a database of natural history sure. about a region that there's just no way to go back and track some of those things. There's no way to go and quantify yeah, if you're, some of these issues. If you're a brand new researcher today and you land in Fort McPherson in the Northwest Territories, you wouldn't know that uh, you know the birds that used to be there uh, aren't there anymore. They don't come anymore. Or that the willows are moving north every year. You wouldn't know those things, especially if you only come for a week, week or two and do a bio blitz and then leave with your data. You just missed the whole picture. You got a, basically a, you know, a selfie of yourself. On the Mackenzie River, yeah, science selfie of yourself on the Mackenzie River, and that was really all you got. Where these people have lived there for thousands of years, the people that exist today are not leaving, it's their home. This is place-based science, where it is their home, it is where they are. I mean, I hope as the project grows, we just bring it to Moscow, Idaho, <laughs> because it's that important that we get this right going into the future. Well, and it seems, and I don't know quite how to ask this question, but I mean, so you have the modern science, you have the, the, the database of natural history that they, they bring to it, but 
they have such a connection to the land and just how they, they feel and think about the land that, you know, differs for myself. I've lived in, you know, 15 places over my lifetime. I, there's no way that I can have the connection to a place that mm-hmm. they would have. So, I mean, that's going to get worked into the project as well, it seems, that idea. Well, so let me, maybe I can help with that. So as an indigenous <laughs> person, whether you live here or there and you move around a lot, I've done the same myself. You think about this. You'll hear it at large native gatherings and small native gatherings. Someone will say, all my relations. What they mean is not their close, yeah, yeah, grandma and grandpa. They, they do mean that. But when they say all my relations, they're looking out across the entire existence of, uh, of what we see. Uh, the trees, the rocks, the whole works. We have a connection to all of that. We're not separate from uh, the, the natural system. We're just part of it. As we've gone through modern society, we do really do separate ourselves from it. I mean, we live, one, is our lifestyle. We spend very little time outdoors. We have spent a good portion of our society's time on the planet separating ourselves from the natural world. Native people haven't really done that. I mean, we have stayed connected to that world. It's part of who we are. You can't ignore it because it is part of who you are. It's no different than, let's say, your arm or your leg or your ears, really. That's something uh, that I that I hope for this project, that we can bring that kind of thought uh, out more into, you know, into the open for people to think about. So how will that manifest itself then in the actual project? Is it more, you know, the general purpose of the project kind of brings these voices forward, or is it something that literally you'll be able to interact with these stories or, or, or hear these stories in the virtual world? In the virtual world, uh, what we're seeking to do is uh, bring these stories alive for people, these stories from the indigenous people. So what we hear from the indigenous people is they want to be able to tell their own story. We will facilitate that for them to be able to tell their own story in the virtual world. With our team that we have, very talented people, and we'll take on anybody that would like to help us out. But to be able to bring these stories live through the virtual world of the knowledge that the indigenous people have, that they want to share. They want people to understand where their perspective is and how that fits in the modern world and combining that with science. Because as you sit and listen to these people in these semi-directed environments, where what are we going to talk about today? Well, let's talk about your village. That's all we have to do. And let them speak to the microphone. What it brings is voices that have been ignored for decades or centuries. And knowledge that, voices that, that are going to be lost soon. Some of the, yeah, well, at some least of on them, the elder yeah. side. I mean, elders are dying every day, and we're losing that knowledge that they have. You know, one of my favorites is a woman that lives in Ruby, Alaska. And uh, she is about 95 years old the last time I talked to her. And she could talk to me and say, you know, I used to listen to my 95-year-old grandmother when I was 10 and tell me about uh, things in the world. But what she was relaying to me is what her 95-year-old grandmother told her when she was 10. So all of a sudden, in a simple afternoon, 
we had 300 years worth of knowledge that was passed to us through one voice of a very wonderful woman in Ruby, Alaska. Unfortunately, in some respects, she's 95. If we don't capture that now, we'll lose it forever. So you're working with, um, I can't remember quite how many uh, tribes, but quite a few. Quite a few. Obviously, you could just work with one. I mean, you could. But you, you, you aren't. You want Part of the project is you want to capture all these voices. Why do so many? Why work with so many at a time? There's a lot of reasons. So my time in Alaska, I was the executive director of a very large council. There's 70 tribes and First Nations. Every two years, we had a major summit where all the 70 tribes and First Nations came together to make decisions for the future. We sat in a huge circle. Everyone was there, all the, from leaders and elders all the way down to children. Everyone within that circle had a voice. It didn't matter if you were 80 years old or eight. You were listened to respectfully by everyone. And the reason for that is to capture all the ideas. None of us have all the ideas. And sometimes, honestly, in my experience, the children have the best ideas. <laughs> so they're very honest. <laughs> and then elders are very honest. Using those thoughts within this project, it becomes very powerful when we can allow these people that live in remote Sahara Republic in Russia, talk with the people that live in remote places in Northwest Territories, to the tribes that live here in Idaho and the Pacific Northwest. It becomes very powerful when we can have all of them discuss a common uh, challenge. Let's say it's water quality, let's say it's climate change, uh, whatever it is amongst themselves, and come to a determination about a course for the future. That becomes a very powerful component of the project. You know, last year, we were working with the Nanets and the Samish tribe up in the Pacific Northwest, and this was so cool. We were doing one of our virtual campfires, and honestly, it's just Skype on steroids. And so the Nanets people live um, a few hundred miles north of Moscow, up in the Arctic, and the Samish live over near Anacortes, Washington. The Samish, they were going to do a welcome song with their drumming and their singing. Mm -hmm. As soon as they started... This was so cool. The uh, Nanette's people grabbed their drums and got up and joined in. <laughs> they were separated by, I don't know, 6,000 miles. That was an extremely powerful moment. Now, that was just the welcome. Imagine what happens after that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in and, and talking to me about the Link Project. I, I'm really excited to see how it all turns out and to go explore the virtual world. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, stay tuned. It's going to be a pretty cool thing. If you found John's research intriguing, you might also enjoy learning about these other U of I projects. U of I will begin designing the nation's largest research dairy, called the Idaho Center for Agriculture, Food, and the Environment, or CAFE for short. A $1 million gift from the J.R. Simplot Corporation brought the university commitment for the project to $10 million releasing the state appropriation to U of I. Department of Biological Sciences' Larry Forney found that measuring the levels of acids and proteins in vaginal fluid may be a non-invasive and cost-effective way to assess the risk for preterm birth due to a short cervix. 
The study is a first step towards developing an inexpensive test to assess the presence of known risk factors for preterm birth. Assistant Professor Dakota Robertson has earned a 2019-2020 White House Fellowship and will spend a year working for the U.S. Department of Defense. His expertise in power systems and renewable energy integration led him to the National Leadership and Public Service Program. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. If you're interested in learning more about the research we covered today, I hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory. On the website, you can also read our show notes and email me with comments. And as always, we'd love it if you would subscribe on your favorite podcasting website. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. You can help people find The Vandal Theory by leaving a review and rating while you're there. We really appreciate all the support and hope you're enjoying these stories. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.